Hey everyone, Paul here. You're listening to part 13. Yes, part 13 in our Problem of Evil series. If you've started to listen to this podcast, perhaps maybe just within the last couple of weeks when we've had interviews or other standalone episodes, you might not be familiar with my goals for this particular series or what we've been doing in it. I'm acting as a tour guide to take you through over 2,000 years of Christian theological history to help you and really to help me try to best address one of the most difficult problems, not just in some sort of abstract theological sense, but one of the most difficult emotional, psychological, and yes, theological problems for so many of us. And it's the problem of evil and suffering. So this is part 13, and I really encourage you This is a series that we are going chronologically from the biblical material all the way through church history. And right now we're in the 19th century. So that might seem daunting, but I really encourage you, go through all 1900 years of this uh, to to get to this point. So we are, we're in the 19th century. We're going to go back, maybe cover a little bit 18th century stuff in today's episode. But, oh boy, I really want to encourage you, start from there because these concepts build on each other. You see the long historic wrestling with these problems and these questions and possible solutions. And then you see someone else come up with a, a hole in that solution and they poke a hole in it. And it's, it's really, I think, really fun. Fun is a weird word to use when it comes to the problem of evil, but it's fun because I'm starting to see, even as I'm doing this with you, I'm starting to see all these connections. Uh, It's helping me reformulate and and try to come to a place, as I was just telling my wife the other day, we were talking about some real instances of evil and suffering we've experienced in our lives. And I was telling her, one of the reasons why I'm doing this is to figure this out for myself. I certainly have had my opinions before in the past, but I I wanna see what people much smarter than me have had to say about this really, really vitally important subject. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. We're in part 13 of our Problem of Evil series. In the year 1818, a 20-year-old girl published one of the scariest tales of our modern age. The book was entitled Frankenstein or The Modern Prometheus. Of course, we are well aware of more modern adaptations of Dr. Frankenstein's monster, especially during this time of the year we're a few weeks away from Halloween, but many of our modern imaginings of Frankenstein neglect the deep cultural theology that young Mary Shelley was wrestling with in her brilliant novel. Oh, and again, I think I mentioned this, she was 20 years old when she published this back in a time in which uh, women were not seen as highly as they are today. Embedded within Frankenstein are deep ideas and questions about the dangers of humanity's relentless pursuit of knowledge and what might happen if scientific inquiry becomes untethered from true and just motivations. What sort of monster might our idealistic pursuit of progress create? Secondly, from the vantage point of Frankenstein's creature, who is never given a name in the book. I'm sure many of you know this, but the monster isn't actually called Frankenstein. The monster is never given a name. It is, it is Dr. Frankenstein's creature. So from the vantage point, when we pursue perhaps the, the theological and philosophical ideas and questions embedded in Frankenstein's creature and his character arc, who again is never given a name in the book, we can see Shelley exploring maybe some of our own quest for meaning as humans through the monster's quest for meaning. Questions like, why did my maker create me? This creature, Frankenstein's creature, feels its wretchedness. It it feels its sense abandonment from its maker. At one point, saying to its creator, Dr. Frankenstein, and I won't do this in a Frankenstein voice, I'll spare you that, but uh, the creature says to Dr. Frankenstein, he says, quote, I ought to be thy Adam, 
but I am rather the fallen angel. The creature feels the sense of wretchedness, the sense of evil within himself, the sense of abandonment from its maker. Shelley's work at the beginning of the 19th century, it reflects this deep struggle with the problem of evil, suffering, and, and questions of human meaning that only intensifies throughout the rest of the century. Throughout the rest of the 19th century, scientific inquiry seems to reveal a world that was far older and far more violent than previously imagined. A world where humanity's place in it and purpose in this grand cosmos seems to have been demoted to an accidental creature lower than even Frankenstein's monster. In order to understand the theological attempts to address the problem of evil that emerged in the 20th century, we need to fully appreciate the challenges the 19th century produced. These challenges made so many people feel like the answers of the past, from Augustine to Luther to Leibniz and Kant, just weren't satisfactory. As we've seen earlier in this series, typical pre-enlightenment theology in the Christian tradition was very human-centered or anthropocentric in the way that it assigned responsibility for the world's evils and sufferings on human activity or human sinfulness. A typical Augustinian account explaining the causes of evil and suffering usually might trace the original rupture of paradise and the, the rupture of the perfect ordering of the cosmos to Adam and Eve's disobedience in the Garden of Eden. Obviously, we've seen a bunch of nuanced variations from this as we've explored different theologians and philosophers throughout time, but, but by and large part, this, this Augustinian style framing the perfect creation followed by a human fall and then the the subsequent need for redemption has probably been the normative understanding of the origins of evil, both natural and moral, by Christians throughout a variety of denominations and traditions, both in the past but also in the present. This is probably something you're really familiar with. This idea that creation was perfect, that God made the universe perfect, and that somehow humanity's fall in the garden was what brought about the devastations, not just again in moral human evils, but also in the, in, in the causation of natural evils, why there is famine and pestilence and plague. In this anthropocentric framework, everything from a hurricane to a plague or famine, it can be assigned to the sin of that primordial couple, and oftentimes we could even say our own sin. We saw this not just in the early Catholic Church, but we also see it in Luther and Calvin's Protestant theology. Now, certainly, there's been room, as we've seen, for disagreement. And in this disagreement, right, you might find varying opinions about whether a hurricane was a direct act of God's judgment as a secondary cause, or, or whether the existence of hurricanes was just simply part of a larger system of divine judgment on Adam and Eve, which it just has ramifications that continue until the eschaton, until the final setting right of all things. In other words, Adam and Eve's sin caused the dysfunctional cosmos now, the, the, the dysfunction in our ordered cosmos that includes hurricanes, plagues, and famines, not to mention human evils like greed, murder, theft, etc. So without even an explicit divine action of God's hand to create a hurricane as an immediate act of judgment, there has been a large theological tradition that just says, hey, this is part of God's judgment in the sense that Adam and Eve's sin has brought this condition about in the world. The Enlightenment and the scientific revolution were already starting to stir the theodicy pot in a sense, stir it and, and, and cause this change, this movement away from the 
this kind of Augustinian theodicy. Newton proposed this system of laws running like a fine-tuned machine in the universe, and, and these laws are what kept the heavenly bodies in their orbit. They're, they're these laws that these laws caused you to get a little knot on your head if you were sitting under an apple tree and an apple fell on it, right? In those cases, you don't need to assign God as the direct causal agent flicking the tree branch and thrusting down an apple onto your noggin. You have a more mindless function of the machinery of the universe, namely gravity, to thank for that. Gravity in and of itself isn't a mind, um, mindful agent. Instead, what you have are these laws, the, the cogs and the machinery of the universe that God has designed to act a particular way in the world. So yes, in a sense, during the Enlightenment, many people still felt that God was responsible for the activities and the governance of the cosmos, but God's role in, in those activities as a personal active agent in them was certainly diminished. The God of the gaps was becoming smaller. Along with that, we have this movement away from the anthropocentric view of creation as well. The cosmos with the earth and humanity at the center of it all has been replaced at this point by a universe far larger than we previously imagined. Certainly, as we discussed in our episode on Gottfried Leibniz, some people saw the increased awareness of the unfathomable scale of the universe is all the more reason to believe that the sum total of goodness and beauty in creation vastly outweighed the evil and suffering we experience in the world. But not everyone was seeing it Leibniz's way. Not everyone agreed, and if anything, if nothing else, humanity, humanity feels a lot smaller and more insignificant in the grand picture. The anthropocentric, this human-centered view for causation of all sorts of evil only took on even more strain when geology and biology in the 19th century showed that even our world had existed long before humans were on the scene. Christianity had long held the theological affirmation of the value of reason and revelation as paths to understanding God and his world. During the Enlightenment, though, there was this growing movement away from special revelation as a viable path to knowledge of God and his world, and an increasing emphasis on reason and empiricism as the chief paths to knowledge. Of course, as hopefully you remember from these previous episodes we covered on this subject, this led to things like, on one extreme, the deist movement, right? The deist movement, which just saw God as the simply the prime mover, the, the uh, clockmaker God who designed creation and then just left it to function under the laws and the machinery, um, the way the, the machine was built to function in the universe. So you had that on one side. On another side, you had the really the beginnings of, of atheism as we understand it today. But then you even had on the other side people like uh, Kant and Schleiermacher who were trying to demonstrate that reason had its limits and that intuition, feeling, and faith, maybe these, these areas that we might say have more alignment with special revelation, that, that these things, intuition, feeling, faith, that they actually had a necessary role in the cultivation of wisdom. One of the most popular theological movements in Western thought during the 18th and 19th century, as you remember, was the rise of natural theology. And natural theology just sought to show how knowledge of God could be deduced primarily by understanding his creation using reason and empirical observation. So there was this movement towards let's use science and let's use our reasoning capabilities and logic to 
understand God. And let's maybe, not even maybe, we are going to put a greater emphasis on that, on that path to knowing God, than we will, let's say, understanding the scriptures, which again, you know, we've talked about before, but, but, you know, bifurcating reason and revelation in this way seems pretty artificial. You use your faculties of reason to even make sentences uh, make sense, to to make sure that the words that we uh, are using are operating under some sort of coherent pattern. So, you know, the way that we split this up ultimately probably doesn't make sense, but there has long been this struggle that we probably still, I know we still experience, especially in evangelical settings, we experience this tension today about whether or not we trust in our own understanding, right, as it's frequently framed, or we we trust in God's word. And so in natural theology in the 18th, 19th century, you had this movement to just go, hey, you know what? We are going to put primary emphasis on reasoning, on science, on math, on empiricism. And, and we're going to try to perhaps maybe find ways that the scriptures can complement what we've deduced through our faculties of reason. Because the Christian narrative was part of the larger cultural norm in Western civilization, at least to some extent, the modern geological movement began, even as early as the 17th century, with Christian geologists scouring the geological evidence of the world for evidence of a global flood, evidence that may demonstrate the reasonableness of the story of Noah. Again, you have to situate this within the broader movement of natural theology. Can we use our faculties of reason and empiricism to demonstrate the trustworthiness of this biblical story that we believe? And so this is what actually gave birth in many ways to the the beginning of modern geology. It was people scouring the planet for evidence of the the global flood, the, the flood of Noah, at least as it's commonly understood to be a global flood. The Earth's horizontal layers of rocks and sediment known as strata became a compelling area of study with these early, early modern geologists, finding fossils and clear differences in the strata. It was really fascinating for them. So one of the earliest theories that emerged as they, they observed the different strata of, the, of our planet and found really distinct layers in which certain fossils emerged in particular layers while they weren't present in other layers of the strata created a theory that the Noah the the Noahic the the global flood of Noah was what caused all of the unique strata and geological formations but by the mid 18th century there were already some some chinks in the armor for the global flood theory. With increasing geological study and fascination, the global flood theory was under significant scientific duress. The evidence already at this point was becoming pretty clear that it couldn't have been simply one catastrophic event which created the the numerous distinct strata layers. As we move into the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution had begun, and, and that Industrial Revolution called for an increase in metals and minerals to support the market demands, and this subsequently created an explosion in mining expeditions with teams of geologists traveling around the world as part of these mining expeditions. And the more this happened, the more geological study took place the more the geological evidence pointed to certainly the existence of large-scale catastrophes, but they also demonstrated that geological formations are often just the result of very long, slow processes. Because radiocarbon dating hadn't been developed yet, some of these age-of-the-earth theories in the 19th century were were still a long way off 
from what we know today, but it was becoming nearly indefensible to hold to a view of the earth being simply 5,000 years old, which had previously been a timeline that many people in the Western world believed, based on things like the historic records of the development of modern civilizations, which you, you go back and at the time they, they, you know, and this is true in a in large part that we see this huge, massive explosion of the development of, of civilizations that we, you know, modern, I should say, in comparison to uh, more primitive hunter-gatherer communities, not modern in the sense that they've got, you know, iPhones and automobiles and things like that, but modern in the sense that we've got organized things like government and city-states and people actually living in, in cities like what we saw in the ancient Sumerian civilization. So the historical records at the time uh, just seem to point to, well, somewhere around that time period, this is where we see the rise of civilization. So maybe, you know, maybe that's just how old the earth is. Along with that, uh, in Christian or Christendom in the Western world, there's commonly this theory of, you know, we can date the age of humanity and subsequently the age of the earth by computing the genealogies in the scriptures going back to Adam. You know, many of you are familiar with these sorts of apologetic defenses as you've grown up in perhaps Christian environments that are still trying to defend a young earth. But again, even already by the end of the 19th century, defending that was nearly impossible for anybody that understood the science. Of course, again, radiocarbon dating hadn't been developed yet, which gave much more precision to our numbers. But it was already clear that the Earth was at least millions of years old, if not hundreds of millions of years old. And this obviously created concerns for many about the scientific legitimacy of the Bible. Maybe this whole natural theology thing isn't going to work out like we think it's going to work out. So with those concerns about the legitimacy, scientific legitimacy of the Bible, there was also this deeper psychological, theological, philosophical, and ethical challenge that was created. Questions that began to become even stronger in the minds of people. Questions about who we were and who we are as humans when we long thought that the story started with God and us, but now it seems like we're not even anywhere to be found in the geological story until this tiny sliver of time near the end of the geological timeline. So how does Adam and Eve fit? And what do we do with all these fossils that showed things died long before we would have timed out Adam and Eve's lifetime, long before we would have timed out an event like the fall previously? Oh, and some of these things, these fossils they're finding, um, they're really big. <laughs> uh, let's call them dinosaurs. Yes, dinosaurs weren't even discovered properly until the 19th century. Certainly we know probably people had discovered large fossils, but weren't sure about them and didn't know what to make of them. But these geological expeditions, these mining expeditions, uncovered treasure troves of dinosaur bones. And it became clear there were really big, large, again, originally they just thought they were large lizards, hence the term dinosaurs. But where do they fit into all of this? right? Why aren't they in the Bible? Why aren't they around now? Did Noah not like T-Rexes and didn't bring them on the ark? Still, with this growing insurmountable evidence for the existence of dinosaurs and old earth and evidence that humans weren't around on this geological timeline till much later, you still had apologists for the anthropocentric traditional Augustinian-style theodicy. 
People like George Bug, who in 1826 sought to defend what he saw was the truth of the Bible in the face of modern geology. He wrote a book called Scriptural Geology, which proposed that carnivores were originally vegetarian herbivores, that humans were made originally perfect, but that all of creation is now progressively getting worse and more violent and more evil. The root cause of all of this? Bugs said it was, quote, a moral one. Man departed from allegiance to his maker, and from that period, the whole world degenerated, end quote. The challenge that many Christian apologists of the 19th century found with the new geological science, which is still a core problem for many Christians today with science, is to quote Charlene P.E. Burns, whose work we've been using throughout this series, quote, without the biblical interpretation of evil in the natural world having come about as a penalty for sin, God becomes an immoral and evil deity. End quote. This certainly was the problem that people were experiencing as this new evidence proposed challenges to the Augustinian theodicy, to the, to the way the biblical narrative was understood. And the real challenge that was at the core of that time period and still exists for many people today is the sense that if these things are true, if the biblical interpretation of evil in the natural world wasn't the result of a penalty for sin, if it's not on us, then doesn't that make God an immoral and evil deity? If it's not our fault that the world is like that, who is the causal agent responsible for all of these horrors? Defending the goodness of and the omnipotence of God along with these common ways of understanding the Bible, this became an even more difficult task after the publication of Charles Darwin's Origin of Species in 1859. Driven by the imperialist proclivities to explore and conquer new uncharted lands, Britain sent out a 10-gun naval battleship called the HMS Beagle in December of 1831 to explore South America and then on to New Zealand and Australia before finally returning to England in 1836. Aboard the HMS Beagle was a young naturalist named Charles Darwin. Darwin had originally went to school to join the clergy, but Darwin experienced a series of tragic sufferings in his life, losing his father and his daughter three years later after an excruciating battle with what was likely tuberculosis. These experiences, along with what Darwin observed on his voyage on the HMS Beagle and his time spent in the Galapagos Islands, created in him an insurmountable problem with the Christian God he had worshipped as a boy. In 1860, he wrote to Asa Gray, quote, With respect to the theological view of the question, this is always painful to me. I am bewildered. I had no intention to write atheistically, but I own that I cannot see as plainly as others do, and as I should wish to do, evidence of design and beneficence on all sides of us. There seems to me too much misery in the world. I cannot persuade myself that a beneficent and omnipotent God would have designedly created the Echnoimiad wasp with the express intention of their feeding within the living bodies of caterpillars, or that a cat should play with mice. On the other hand, I cannot anyhow be contented to view this wonderful universe, and especially the nature of man, and to conclude that everything is the result of brute force. I am inclined to look at everything as resulting from designed laws. 
with the details, whether good or bad, left the working out of what we may call chance. Not that this notion at all satisfies me. I feel most deeply that the whole subject is too profound for the human intellect. A dog might as well speculate on the mind of Newton. Let each man hope and believe what he can, and I can see no reason why a man or other animal may not have been aboriginally produced by other laws, and that all these laws may have been expressly designed by an omniscient creator who foresaw every future event in consequence. But the more I think, the more bewildered I become, as indeed I have probably shown by this letter." End quote. Boy, I remember as a kid hearing these sorts of caricatures of Darwin that he was an, an atheist with an axe to grind and that he set out to you know, destroy Christianity with his, his research and with his writing. I mean, he was really made into this horrible, horrible villain with villainous intent in so much of the, the young earth creation science stuff that I was exposed to throughout my, my childhood. But as you can see here, and as you actually begin to read more of Darwin, you can see this is a guy that's really struggling with his faith, really struggling with his findings. And in many ways, he is a picture of what so many people were experiencing in the 19th century as the science seemed to just blow up their previously held beliefs about the way the world worked and the, and the, the Christian story. Darwin concluded in his Origin of Species that all of the variation of plant and animal life we see throughout the world, all that we may even perceive as the beautiful colors of different species of birds or the, the majestic strength of an elephant was simply the result of genetic adaptations that increased those plants or animals' likelihood of surviving in a competitive and often very violent world. Those traits that increase the likelihood of survival get passed on, while eventually other traits that decrease the likelihood of survival will get weeded out. A lion has an increased likelihood to catch the slowest, weakest gazelle. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. One of the most disturbing examples of what Darwin believed to be the inherently violent nature of evolution was the Echnoiman wasp. If you're not familiar with this parasitic wasp that uh, Darwin even brought up in his letter to Asa Gray, I want to read for you a description. This description comes from a book called Non-Moral Nature. The author is Stephen J. Gould. Quote, the Echnoimen, like most wasps, generally live freely as adults but pass their larva life as parasites feeding on the bodies of other animals, almost invariably members of their own phylum, the arthropoda. The most common victims are caterpillars, butterfly and moth larvae, but some Echnoimens prefer aphids and other attack spiders. Most hosts are parasitized as larvae, but some adults are attacked, and many tiny ichnoimans inject their brood directly into the eggs of their host. The free-flying females locate an appropriate host and then convert it into a food factory for their own young. Parasitologists speak of ectoparasitism when the uninvited guest lives on the surface of its host, and endoparasitism when the parasite dwells within. Among endoparasitic ichnoimans, adult females pierce the host with their ovipositor and deposit the egg within. Usually, the host is not otherwise inconvenienced for the moment, at least until the eggs hatch and the ichnoiman larvae begin their grim work of interior excavation. <laughs> Among ectoparasites, however, many females lay their eggs directly upon the host's body since an active host would easily dislodge the egg 
the Eknoiman mother often simultaneously injects a toxin that paralyzes the caterpillar or other victim. The paralysis may be permanent and the caterpillar lies alive but immobile with the agent of its future destruction secure on its belly. The egg hatches, the helpless caterpillar twitches, the wasp larvae pierces and begins its grisly feast. Since a dead and decaying caterpillar will do the wasp no good, it eats in a pattern that cannot help but recall in our inappropriate anthropocentric interpretation the ancient English penalty for treason drawing and quartering, with its explicit object of extracting as much torment as possible by keeping the victim alive and sentient. As the king's executioner drew out and burned his client's entrails, so does the ichnoiman larvae eat fat bodies and digestive organs first, keeping the caterpillar alive by preserving intact the essential heart and central nervous system. Finally, the larvae completes its work and kills its victim, leaving behind the caterpillar's empty shell. Is it any wonder that ichnoimans, not snakes or lions, stood as the paramount challenge to God's benevolence during the heyday of natural theology? End quote. Golly, I mean, this is a scene straight out of the alien film saga with the the xenomorphs. I've just been going through those recently, which kind of brings our conversation to full circle to, to Frankenstein's other title, which was The Modern Prometheus. The Modern Prometheus is kind of what the, the alien prequel Prometheus is largely about, if you've seen that movie. Um, I've, I rewatched it again recently. I saw it years ago when it first came out, rewatched it again, and I, I've seen it as I've been preparing for this episode with kind of fresh eyes. In that movie, a, a young scientist like Darwin, exploring their deepest questions out on expedition, encounters answers that disappoint and only bring about greater questions. The interesting thing in that movie is how the main character... Dr. Elizabeth Shaw is the daughter of a Christian missionary, and she's going out to explore. She wants to know who her maker is, and all the while she keeps her cross necklace on and her faith in God, even when she discovers, uh, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm going to spoil it, all right? So you have some time to maybe skip ahead 15, 20 seconds if you don't want the movie spoiled, but here's the spoiler alert. She discovers that the beings that made humans are actually aliens planning on destroying humanity with these xenomorphs. And this is so much like a, a picture of what Darwin encountered and the thing that he wrestled with, these creatures that actually, just like in these alien xenomorphs, they lay their eggs within, you know, agents that can feel and, and have their own wishes for their life, their own desires. And these aliens actually burrow themselves within their host and erupt and emerge just like that. Those horrific scenes from the very first alien film of these, you know, the face huggers. <laughs> you know, uh, laying their eggs within that first human host and then, you know, bursting out of the stomach or the chest. It's, it's horrific. And you get this sense that, you know, Sigourney Weaver's character, if you were in her position in Alien and Aliens, you walk away from that movie going, boy, I don't know if the world, this universe is a good place. And this is so much of what Darwin wrestled with. And when he told his story, when he told of his research, the thing that so many people started to feel, the problems we already know were great with the problem of evil. And people have been wrestling with that for thousands of years. But for Christians and for people in Christendom in Western civilization, Darwin's work deepened the theodicy problem. If God created ex nihilo, 
And this is the method of unbroken law by which he made the world where only the strong survive, then either the God of Darwin is not good, or he is not all-powerful, or he simply does not exist. Or even one other option that becomes more popular in some schools of theological thought as we head into the 20th century, one could just simply deny a role to natural theology at all. Maybe natural theology, maybe science, maybe reason, maybe all of that reveals very little about who God is and what he's like. There were some in Darwin's day who accepted his scientific research but questioned his interpretive language. One such person was a geologist, paleontologist, and a priest named William Buckland. Buckland thought it was foolish to deny the overwhelming scientific evidence coming from geology and biology. He, he saw it necessary for theologians to wrestle with Darwin's scientific findings, not deny them. While so many 19th century Christians thought it was necessary to deny the science as this new science was perceived to be a threat to faith, Buckland thought that it was marvelous that there were so many new things for humanity to discover about the world. Whereas some saw senseless violence in the preceding catastrophic events like the one that killed off the dinosaurs or in the survival of the fittest mode of the plant and animal world, Buckland saw God's providence in adapting the world for increased human benefit. All suffering, to Buckland, served the universal good. He saw death as the inevitable experience for, quote, all organic beings, end quote. It wasn't a punishment that was traceable to the fall. Death and decomposition of organic material were just part of God's functional ordering of creation from the get-go. Humanity's sin creates suffering primarily in the effects that it has on other humans through our direct actions. But hurricanes, they exist as part of the mysterious grand ordering of the cosmos, not because humans have sinned. Certainly, Buckland's mode of interpreting the science gives us good pause to think about the matter of scientific interpretation. How do we take the scientific data and form it into a narrative, into a story, into a conclusion about the way reality works? Certainly, how we interpret the world around us is a matter of serious debate. We can see in Darwin, for example, the influence of someone like Thomas Malthus. Malthus was famous for his theories about overpopulation and limited resources. So Darwin's survival of the fittest language, that wasn't neutral. It wasn't purely objective. Many people found it compelling, but not everyone. There should be good question as to the sorts of ideological influence someone like a Thomas Malthus has on Darwin's language. The language of survival of the fittest is very much a part of this sort of Malthusian framework. And the impact of this kind of language goes well beyond just scientific textbooks. So many people found Darwin's language to be so compelling that they thought it would be best to consider it not just descriptive of how things are, but prescriptive. We can see the influence of Darwin's survival of the fittest framework and language, his tendency to see the world enmeshed in a violent struggle for, uh, in competition for limited resources. We can see that as the ideological seeds of things like the 20th century eugenics movement, euthanasia, the Nazi Holocaust, and many more human moral evils in the 20th century, all falling under the guise of social Darwinism. 
Nevertheless, Christians have continued to wrestle with the scientific discoveries of the 19th century and what the implications of those discoveries mean to their theology. Certainly one path which I, and I know many of you who listen, are well familiar with has been the path of creating alternative science that fits the traditional Augustinian framework. Others, like myself today, have sought to make sense of God and the world through both the science of the day and the timeless theological truths of Scripture. While others still, like Darwin near the end of his life, have felt the problem of evil and suffering has become too much for their faith to bear. To those of you approaching that final category, or maybe you're in that final category right now, let me just implore you for a moment. Don't, don't give up yet. I have seen too many abandon their faith for what they believe is a more reasonable view of the world in our modern scientism, only to find that the problem of evil doesn't just go away. It gets worse. And if they continue to follow the trajectory of their questions in that frame, they often find that nihilism is what lies at the end of the road. Well, thanks for listening to today's episode, everyone. I know we were a little bit lighter than previous episodes in this series on expounding on fresh theological proposals, or maybe if they were fresh to you, these historic theological proposals about how to address the problem of evil and suffering. But in order for us to really fully appreciate the creative efforts of theologians in the 20th century, many of whom espouse to much more um, creative, and for some of you, maybe even see them as heretical uh, attempts to deal with the problem of evil. This episode is, I think, a necessary bridge for you to fully appreciate why there have been the efforts of some, let's say, like uh, open theists, like like Greg Boyd and Clark Pinnock, or uh, in the case of someone like um, like Thomas Ord and Thomas's, Thomas Ord's sort of God can't theodicy. And I actually hope to, I hope to talk to Thomas and some of maybe these other living theologians living in the 21st century here uh, in, in future episodes. But in order for us to appreciate maybe why they are, are trying such creative and outside of the box theodicies, uh, I think this episode is really important because these are people that that get this stuff. They have they have done the reading. Uh, they have seen the sorts of questions, especially these questions that emerge in the 19th and into the 20th century. And oh boy, do the questions emerge even uh, the questions deepen about moral human evils in the 20th century as we enter into the century of two world wars and and all of the horrors of holocausts and atomic bombs it's a this is a challenging time so all that to say i think it's important this was a necessary episode i think even if you're walking away maybe feeling like man i i don't necessarily know if i have a new tool in my tool belt maybe william buckland gives you some um maybe some hope about how to perhaps reinterpret the scientific data but really laying out the challenges are going to be necessary, I think, for you to understand why people have tried things, things that maybe you see still in the end as failures, failed theodicies, but you at least can maybe appreciate or respect the, the efforts, even if you come away disagreeing with some of the 20th century uh, efforts to address the problems of evil and suffering in the world. So I hope you'll stick with us. I hope you'll keep going through this series. We're working on some uh, other, lining up some other guests here the rest of the year, doing some other standalone episodes as well, addressing perhaps the intersection of theology and the, the particular cultural moments that we're experiencing, primarily here in America where I'm situated. But I want to thank, I just can't do any of this stuff without those who are supporting on Patreon, the members of the Deep Talks Patreon community. And I want to give an extra special thanks to those that are, are giving at the, the Theology 201 level or greater. People like Micah, Sam and Nicole, Taylor S., Justin T., 
Stephen M, Paul S, Sarah R, BJ, Sean C, Josie, Eli, Michael H, Luke H, Tim K, Paul R, Carolyn, thank you all for your support. Thank you for helping to make sure I can keep doing this and to, to try to do this without, you know, inserting ads into these episodes. So uh, I appreciate this. It's it's those of you, not just those that I just l- listed off, but so many others that are contributing, that are helping make possible for me to try to provide some form of like theological, philosophical education in this broad historic Christian perspective uh, to anybody with an internet connection. And it's so fun hearing feedback from all of you and the things that you're getting out of this, the points that you are seeing that you haven't seen before, you know, and, and even even getting the disagreements or the critiques, uh, just, I just, I appreciate all of it. So thank you. Thank you all so much for, for your support. If you want to reach out to me and maybe you've got a question that emerged out of this episode, well, first of all, we do have on the Deep Talks Patreon page, we have a discussion forum available for each episode, um, you know, varying levels of participation. I'd love to see more people even in that are current Patreon members feel free to jump in and to even share feedback with each other and to have each other, uh, those of you connect and maybe even learn from each other's insights. That would be awesome. So you can connect with me on there. I respond to every message, every comment. I, I, I see all of those. But you can also reach out to me if you want to connect with me on Twitter at Paul Ann Leitner. Provide a link to both Patreon and Twitter in the uh, description, the show notes of this podcast. And finally, if you wouldn't mind leaving a review, subscribing on Apple Podcast as it's still, as of right now, it's still the number one platform people are going to to discover new podcasts. So by leaving a review, by rating this podcast and um, and doing those sorts of things, you can help other people who might be searching for something like this and they didn't know it exists, <laughs> help them discover it. So thanks for all those ways that you can support this work that I'm doing. Again, I'd love to hear from you. What did you agree with? What did you disagree with? What did you learn? What sorts of other follow-up questions do you have? Send them all to me. I look forward to hearing from, uh, from you. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.